Are we on now? We are on now. All right, well, let's find our places and open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we are going to finish chapter 4 today since we only have to work our way through one verse. Man, I hope we can make through one verse. And then we'll cover uh, the first um, section of chapter 5. So last week we were looking at um, Paul's specific instruction to Timothy. So you'll recall that in chapter 1, he is uh, talking about, you know, I've left you at Ephesus so that you would instruct certain men not to teach the false things that they have been teaching. And um, we move into chapter 2 where he starts talking about here's how worship should, this is what worship should look like in the church between um, prayer and the gospel and um, how people are to act during worship. In chapter 3, he got into qualifications for leadership, both for elders and deacons and deaconesses. And then in chapter 4, he shifts gears a little bit, and he talks very specifically to Timothy. So uh, I think we mentioned this last week when, as Charles, excuse me, as Charles has been going through 1 Peter, he says that all those yous in 1 Peter are in the plural, so they are y'alls. So this is y'all, all of you. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, it is very specific that he is talking you, Timothy, you individually, you singular. And he warns of apostasy in verses 1 to 5, how there is going to be a turning away in later times, and that... uh, in 4.1, where it talks about some will fall away, we looked at that as actually more intentional. It's not something where it's a drifting. It's not something where it's by negligence. It's actually something where it's turning away. It's very similar, to, frankly, to the concept of repentance, to where you are going in a particular direction, and you stop, and you turn, and you go the other way. So it's, it's more of a repudiation um, or a denial And then we get into the section of chapter 4, verses 6, going all the way through verse 16, where he's talking specifically about Timothy. And Timothy, this is how you need to be. These are the qualities of a good leader. These are the qualities of a good minister of Jesus Christ. This is what you want to look like. And he goes through and he elicits a number of things. And we've looked at that over the last couple of weeks. And he sums it up in in verse 16 with pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. And so here you have two Basic headings that all of these other things that he has been talking about in the previous verses are going to fall into these two headings. Pay close attention to yourself. Pay close attention to your own pursuit of personal holiness. You cannot 
deviate from the track of pursuing your own holiness. What happens if he gets careless? Remember earlier in the, in the chapter, um, there was this idea of carelessness, and Paul is being very specific here. You need to be very careful in this regard. What happens to Timothy if he strays from the path of personal holiness? What happens to him? What happens to you? I'm sorry? Okay, he can't be a shepherd. Why not? Exactly. So the idea is, is that leaders in God's church predominantly lead by example. It's their example. As, as Paul wrote in, in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ, which is a pretty high bar, right? But the idea is, is that, and, and as Susie was saying, that if, if, if through his example... He is falling to the wayside. Number one, he's going to at least influence his people that way if, in fact, he doesn't actually lead them that way. That is why um, ongoing sin, unrepentant sin in the life of a pastor is so devastating. And, in fact, it's devastating enough that in chapter 5, Paul's going to deal with that. How do you deal with a pastor who has either fallen off the trail, fallen off of the straight and narrow when it comes to his own holiness, or how do you deal with him when he has fallen off the trail of sound doctrine? And so there are ways to deal with that. And in fact, he's very specific. We're going to get into that, I believe, next week. And so pay close attention to yourself. Also, pay close attention to your teaching. Make sure that what you are teaching is what God is saying. That idea of sound doctrine, uh, Paul uses a couple of different terms with that, one of which we get our word hygiene from. So it's sound, it's healthy doctrine. The other word that's used here in 1 Timothy is uh, the word for good. And so this is, this is doctrine that is uh, intrinsically good. And it would be intrinsically good because it comes from a God who is intrinsically, perfectly good. And so this, this idea here of making sure that you're keeping both sides of the fork... You're keeping them both nice and in line, both your, his pursuit of holiness and his doctrine. And in fact, the word is he is to persevere in this. And so that idea of persevering is uh, being rooted to where this is, this is something that is steadfast. This is uh, it's something that's indicative. It's ongoing. It's not a flash in the pan. It's not something that he does 
Uh, it is not something that he does to get ordained and then immediately forgets about it. So you don't do it just to where you can, you can somehow have a position and then somehow it doesn't matter anymore. Now we started to talk last week about this idea here at the end of verse 16. For as you do this, as you pay close attention, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. And we talked about this a little bit last week. This word ensure salvation is, is, is a Greek verb, sozo. It's used 102 times in the New Testament. And so it's a fairly common term. And it can refer to salvation. It can. But frankly, much of the time, it does not refer to that. It refers to being saved, but it's being saved from some peril or some danger. Last week we looked at Hebrews 5.7 where that, that verb is used of Jesus who was crying out with uh, loud cries and tears to the Father so that the Father would save him from death. Now, Jesus doesn't need to be saved in the way that we need to be saved when it comes to being saved from our sin, right? So we're not talking about something that's salvation. It's not, we're not talking about redemption. That was a case where he wants to be delivered from death. Was that prayer answered? Yeah, actually, was it? Yes, it was. Did he die? Yes. Was he raised? Yes. Why was he raised? Hebrews tells us that because death had no hold on him. He, there was no sin that he had committed that would allow death to have a grip on him. And so the idea of his resurrection was that that is God's you know, good housekeeping seal of approval on Jesus' sacrifice. That's why Jesus is an acceptable atonement for us. And God has approved that. So this idea of being saved from peril, peril and danger are referred to constantly in this book. So let's just turn back a page and let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We can begin in verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. I'm leaving you here because there are men in the church in Ephesus who are teaching error, and you are to confront them about it. So again, you are to stay on the straight and narrow, and you are to confront those who are off of it. Go down to verse 6. For some men, straying from these things, I'll just go back to 5. For the goal of our, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So again, this idea where they have been exposed to sound doctrine. Remember, who had been their kind of, frankly, who was their founding pastor at Ephesus? Who was their founding pastor? Paul. Does Paul have sound doctrine? You betcha. And so they've been raised on this. Paul has been gone for a period of time now. He's returned. He's come. Now he's leaving Timothy because there's trouble in River City. And there are pastors, just as was foretold back in Acts chapter 20, when Paul met with the Ephesian elders at Miletus, and he tells them, from among your own selves, men will arise who will savage the flock. They're going to lead them astray. And in fact, it's happening now. And that's one of the reasons why Paul is leaving Timothy there. These men have strayed. And as a result of straying, now what are they teaching? Stuff they ought not be teaching. It's not accurate. It's not appropriate. Go down to verse 10. He's already begun a list, uh, prior and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. That's the stuff that is being uh, put forward now. Go to verse 13. Even though I formerly, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Now frankly, that's what these guys are going to turn into. They are going to be those who are going to end up, again, ravaging the flock. Go down to verse 19. Oh, go back in the last part of 18. That by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So again, this is no trivial matter. Susie? Frankly, it's not that hard for pastors to go their own way if they are not paying attention. Yes. Um, and again, look at the example that he uses here. Now, has Paul been shipwrecked before? Several times. So he's very aware of what it's like to be on the ship when all of a sudden it's run aground 
and it's coming apart. In fact, when he was on his way to Rome, uh, how significant, I mean, how hazardous. What, what was he in danger of when that shipwreck occurred? What did the soldiers want to do? Kill him. Why? He's a prisoner. If he escapes, they die. So they want to kill the prisoners so that they're okay. And, and frankly, I mean, it's, it's like you watch on any, uh, on, if you watch Titanic or some movie that's like that about a shipwreck, you know, people are grabbing onto anything that'll float. They kicked off, hey, can you swim? Fine, go. And the rest of you that can't, <laughs> find something that floats so that you can, you can go in. And so the idea here is when you let go of pursuing personal holiness, when you let go of sound doctrine, you're in danger of shipwreck. You're in danger of all of a sudden everything now being devastated. And it's not just for you. When Paul names names... He talks about Hymenaeus. He talks about Alexander. He's going to talk about Philetus. He's talking about men who have, at one point in time, very likely been in a position of leadership, and now all of a sudden, he's having to turn them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that they would learn not to blaspheme. They would learn not to talk things and not to teach things and not to preach things that are wrong, that are in error that are going to lead people into error. Chapter 2, verse 15. Women will be preserved. And that idea there, that word preserved, that is our word, sozo, by the way. They will be saved. They will be delivered through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. There's a qualifier there, right? You're going to be delivered if you are holding on to these things as you ought. Chapter 3, verse 6. He's not to be talking about qualifications for an elder. He's not to be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Keep going. And he must also have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So he's, you've got a, double, you got a double whammy going here. If he falls into arrogance, then he's going to suffer the consequence. He's going to suffer the sentence that the devil got. Why did Satan get kicked out of heaven? Remember the five I wills, right? I will, and the last one being, I will be like the Most High. I don't, I'm not going to claim, I don't want to necessarily be greater than God, but I'm going to be right there with him. So that's the condemnation incurred. On the other hand, you don't want to end up being ensnared by the devil. By not having a good reputation and falling into reproach. Chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away. They're going to turn away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 
by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. And so again, you have this idea that the, the error that is coming isn't necessarily originating. In fact, it's not originating with these guys. This is getting spawned by Satan and by his minions, and these guys are the mouthpieces thereof. Go down to verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And so again, you've got this contrast between what the false teachers are doing and what Timothy needs to be doing himself. Chapter 5, verse 5. Now she, this is talking about widows. Now she who is a widow indeed truly, and who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. You have the idea here about, oh, the, we're going to get into this here in a little bit, the idea of the widow indeed, one who is truly alone. That's the idea here. Um, the one who is truly alone. She doesn't have family to support her. She's casting her care on God. She is looking to him for her sustenance. She is looking to him for provision. And she is looking to him. She is praying. Her focus is on God. You, you have others who, because they perhaps have a 401K or because they've got an insurance policy, or for whatever reason, they have means and they fall into, they can fall into the trap of all of a sudden, I don't need God because I have this over here. I already have a means and so I'm not in any kind of desperate strait. And frankly, what's one of the great enemies of faith and trust and hope in God? What's one of the great enemies of that? I'm sorry? Put it in one word. Prosperity. What happened to Israel when they got into the promised land? Boy, as soon as Joshua was dead and the elders that had been with Joshua were dead and they've come into a land that is overflowing with milk and honey. And they've moved into villages they didn't have to build. And they've moved into houses they didn't have to build. And they've got vineyards and they've got orchards and they've got all this stuff that they did not have to do. And all of a sudden, the economy, booming. Anybody, poverty, there ain't none. There is none. And what happens? They forget God. Who needs them? I already have everything that I need. Our enemies have already been conquered. We're fat, dumb, and happy. And so, again, you, you, you find this time and again, and, and again, before we go pointing fingers too hard, 
how susceptible are we to that? So again, go down to verse 8 in chapter 5. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And we're going to talk about that later today. That might not be exactly how it sounds. Go down now to verse 11. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. Now, we'll talk about this more next week. This is, this is talking about some widows. You have older widows who end up giving themselves in service to the church. And then you'll have a younger, and again, as you get older, some things change. And um, I, I can tell you now that I'm in my 60s, I have zero interest in raising babies. Okay? Zero. Been there, done that. More than most. And I have no desire to repeat that. Because, pardon me? Yeah, but that's a grandbaby, and that's different. <laughs> the, the idea there is that as you get older, there are just some things that you, you're in a different phase of life. You don't have necessarily the same, the same habits. You don't have the same desires. A lot of things change. But when you're younger, he wants, in fact, the instruction is going to be, you don't put younger women in that position. Because the temptation for them is going to be that rather than being dedicated to Christ and being dedicated to the church, all of a sudden now, I, you know what, I... I I kind of like to get married again and go through and have kids and, and have a family and all of those things. And they are now, they end up turning aside from, some, from a commitment that they had made. And it ends up uh, problematic. Verse 15 For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Ouch. So again, there's, there's consequences. And there were a bunch of others in there. We'll get to that next week. Verse 20. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will also will be fearful of sinning. That's talking about dealing with an elder who's in unrepentant sin. So elders are not exempt. They're not. Now, in that case there, the key phrase there, those who continue in sin. So this is the idea where they have been admonished and they're continuing on. Now, if they have been admonished and they are continuing on in sin, I'm hoping that there's a very specific passage of scripture that's coming into your mind that needs to be coming into play here. And what would that passage be? They're continuing in sin. That's a good concept, but it's not the one that I'm looking for. Progressive church discipline. Matthew 18. Pastors are not immune from that. 
Pastors don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card. If you have someone who is continuing, in fact, not only <laughs> it is different with a pastor in this respect. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all. That's not where Matthew 18 starts. But it gets accelerated much more quickly when it talks about leadership. Because if this man is continuing in sin, what is already, at least you, what, what do you already have the danger of happening? His sin is influencing the flock. And the solution to that is you hit it and you hit it head on. And you do it publicly. If the man will not turn, you deal with it publicly. And in fact, later on he's going to say, and you do not show partiality. Chapter three, 6, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arrive, arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Chapter 6, verse 20. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. It is everywhere in this book. Now, if he is covering that 17 different or references here to either um, unholiness or false doctrine, straying away, strange doctrine, something that's other than what God has said. If he says that 17 times in six chapters, do you think it's a problem? Do you think it's a problem in Ephesus? When you go to the book of Revelation, what is Jesus' beef with the church at Ephesus? Not that one. They've lost their first love. So what had happened? They have come back around, and now their doctrine is according to Hoyle. The doctrine is good. Their attitude is not now they're going through the motions. Now it's almost more by rote, right? There is not the enthusiasm that there once was. There's not the willingness to sacrifice that there once was. 
And so, again, you've got the devil is not satisfied with holding on to one particular means of causing trouble. He will use anything that he can. Now, I bring Ephesus up because that's one that we probably need to be watching for as our church. It's not enough to be doctrinally orthodox. It has everything to do with the attitude of heart as to how we serve our master. And so again, we're not immune to that either. So again, one of the reasons for going through and studying the book these were dangers for a church that had been a solid church. They were a solid church. And over the course of years, now all of a sudden, you've got all of these different issues infiltrating. And even when they fix some of them, there's other ways in which they can be missing the boat. I think I've used the the example before, you ever watched log rolling? You know, they put this log in water and you get two people on there and they've got spiky shoes and the object of the game here is to make the other guy fall off the log before you do. And they go forwards, they go backwards, they go slow, they go fast, they shift direction real quickly and when you watch this sport, you find out that there's a lot of ways to fall off the log. There's not just one. You can smash your chin on the way down. You can go backwards. You can go forwards. You can go feet first. You can go head first. You can go, you can belly flop. There's all kinds of ways to fall off the log. That's the way it is with the Christian life. There's a lot of ways to fall off the log. And we need to be paying close attention. All right. Have we covered that well enough? We're all on the same page there? Is the horse dead? All right, then let's go to chapter 5. So, after he gets done with these, with these admonitions for Timothy as to how he's to, how he's to watch himself, Paul continues on. This is probably not the best chapter break um, in the Bible. He continues right on, and now Timothy... Here's how you are to deal with specific people or kinds of people in your congregation. Again, the idea here is he is to be paying close attention to himself and to his teaching, persevering in that. He's supposed to be an example, and he is supposed to be teaching those in the flock how to do the same things. Now, he's already in a position where he's got problems, right? You've got pastors that are off the reservation. You've got people. You've got women who are teaching. You've got all these other things that have been going on that we have gone through in the first four chapters. And now he comes down and he says, now, here's how I want you to deal with older men. Do not sharply rebuke an older man. Now, this sharply rebuke is related to the word that you see back in chapter 3 talking about an elder qualification where he's not to be pugnacious. Now, pugnacious was what? 
combative, right? A pugnacious guy, he's one who is willing to be physically violent. That's the idea of that word. He's ready to put them up and duke them out. Okay? This word here, do not sharply rebuke, is the verbal form of that verb. So, one, if, so this idea of sharply rebuking is the idea of being verbally violent. You don't verbally abuse. You don't ridicule. You don't vi- verbally beat up on an older man. Rather, appeal to him as a father. Now that is a loaded sentence. When you talk about appeal to him as a father, what is to be the attitude of a child towards his father or her father? I'm sorry? Honor. And when it talks about honoring, what did, all, what did that entail when it came to honoring? When you have the fifth commandment, fifth commandment, honor your father and mother that it may go well for you and that you may live long on the earth. What, it, what does honor mean? Respect. Respect. Humility. Obedience. Big one. In fact, in the Old Testament, what was the penalty for a child who cursed their father or mother? Death. That was the remedy. And in fact, how was that supposed to go? The parents would take that child to the elders, to the ones in charge in town. This, our son, has done such and such and such and such and such and such. They were the ones to bring it. I don't know. I, 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 okay, never mind. Yeah, the good old days. <laughs> so this idea of honor was, it was submissiveness. So it's, and, and again, using that word, because submissiveness, being submissive is not just an action, is it? It's the attitude that goes with it. And so the idea of the, the, the young one putting himself under, being subject to his parents, obeying them. So not only does he have the proper attitude, he has the proper conduct. That's all wrapped up in this idea here of honor. And so Timothy, when you're dealing with an older man, and you're going to be dealing with him because, again, Timothy is a youngster. So many of the people that he's going to be dealing with are going to be older than him. As you do that, you don't beat up on him. You don't pull out your quasi-seminary education because you've been with me for a long time. You do admonish You do correct. Remember, he's told him previously, you prescribe, which again is the word for command. You command these things, but you do it in a gentle fashion. 
and you do it as you were appealing to your own dad. So any, all of these old guys that are in here that you're having to go through and even confront about false teaching and even confronting about uh, things that they're doing that they ought not be, you do it with a gentle attitude. So for instance, when you go to Galatians 6, if, anyone be, if any one of you be overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, go to that one, right? What's the attitude? In an attitude of gentleness, right? You have someone who falls into sin. Um, young lady gets pregnant. She's not married. Either the male or the female side of that equation. How do you deal with that person? Do you shun them because they've sinned? Do you throw them out? How do you respond to them? Do you verbally beat them up? How could you? You don't do any of those things, right? Spirit of gentleness, because what is the desired end when you're having these conversations with somebody who has been overtaken in something like that? What are you trying to accomplish? Restoration. And you're typically, you're not going to get restoration when you beat somebody over the head with a two-by-four. You might get subjection. You might get compliance. But you're sure not going to get restoration. That is not going to happen. So Timothy, don't treat them that way. You appeal to them. Now this idea here of appeal is a common word. Now you see it in several different forms. You'll see it translated exhort. You'll see it translated encourage. You'll see it translated beseech. You'll see it translated comfort. Because it's, the Greek word is parakaleo. The Holy Spirit is referred to as the paraclete, the comforter, right? That's how you do this. You appeal, you urge, you exhort. But it's, it's always in the idea of you're coming alongside them and trying to bring them in the way that they should go. So you're not getting in back of them and, you know, kicking them. And trying to do that, you're not reaching over and grabbing them by the hair. Haha, <laughs> good luck doing that to me. You're not grabbing them by the hair and yanking them along. You're appealing, you're urging, you're encouraging, you're, 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 you're treating them in that way. You, tr you appeal to the younger men as brothers. You appeal to the older women as mothers. And the younger women as sisters in all purity. So you see him dealing with the older men as a son, dealing with his father, with older women as a son, dealing with his mom, with younger men as a brother, with younger women as a sister. You know, as I was going through and I've been reading and reading and reading, what role is Timothy not assuming? 
He's not a parent. He's not dealing with, you know, so, and, and again, what often, since most of us in here, we've got kids. What, I mean, what is automatically assumed, by the way, when you're the parent? Yeah, they'd better do it, but why? Because I am in <clears throat> authority, right? I'm the dad. Why are you going to do what I tell you? Because I'm the dad. Timothy doesn't play that card, and he's not to play that card. Now, it, this, and again, this is interesting, because think through this a little bit. What authority does Timothy have? What authority does a pastor have? It's delegated authority from God. He's an under-shepherd who is under the chief shepherd. Charles talked about that last week, two weeks ago. And so again, does a pastor have innate authority? Should you be doing something simply because I say so? Again, how, what is again, when you have this idea of honor, it's the idea of reasoning with, what does it mean to admonish? What does the word mean? Warn. To inform? Warn. warn? Good. Yes. It's, literally, it means to put in the mind. And so it's, it's, I'm planting this here, and as I am speaking and I am encouraging and appealing to and urging, what am I also trying to trigger? What am I hoping is going to trigger as I'm talking to somebody who's caught in a sin and I'm trying to show them the error of their way? Repentance subsequent to the Holy Spirit and their conscience weighing on them. Oh, you know what? I'm wrong here. And then leading to repentance. I need to change direction. I need to go over here and get back on the straight and narrow. And so how he is to do this is important. Again, you don't see Paul telling him, you need to get up on your soapbox so where you can get the high ground and you can snipe at them and you can physically, you know, you can intimidate them. You can somehow, by, by whatever other means, try to accomplish something that, frankly, only God can do in their heart. Remember, even repentance isn't ours, right? We're hoping that the Lord will lead them, that the Lord would grant them repentance. And so, that's how you deal with them, and it's in all purity. Now, that also is loaded, because what is probably one of the frequent sins that pastors get caught up in? Sorry? Well, pride's one. 
Which is the one that ruins most ministries? Some type of sexual sin. And that's really what that word is getting at when it's it's translated purity. It, It is dealing mostly with the sexual connotation. If you look in the book of Proverbs, especially in the first seven chapters, what does Solomon go back to over and over and over again? It's in every, I think it's in every single chapter, and chapter seven is largely consumed with it. What person, what type of person is Solomon warning his son about? Say it out loud. The adulterous woman. If he's got it in there multiple times, in multiple ways, then something ought to be triggering that, gee whiz, this must be a problem. Maybe I need to pay attention here. That's why, and I'm, I'm grateful that we have it here. So if you go into the office and you go into, you go to Charles's office or you go to Dave's office or even the one that's around the corner that's not used by anybody right now, what do you find in the door? A window. So that people can see. What do you find on the computer in the office? Software that monitors what is being perused on the internet. Those are, those are safeguards that are put into place to try to head off some of these other things. And so again, that's how you deal with those people. Now, in our 10 minutes that's left, let's look at the first part of widows here in verses three to eight. Honor widows who are widows indeed. Now, let's stop there for a second, because what is a widow? Now, when we talk about widows, what are we referring to? A woman who has lost her husband to death, right? That's that, that is the way that our culture uses that term. Now, that is a very, that is a piece of what this incorporates. Because this idea here about being out from under the provision or the protection of a man is also going to include desertion and it's going to include divorce. These women are not provided for. Now, if the divorce is because she's been unfaithful, then that's an issue, and that's something that you need to that needs to be taken to, into account. But frankly, in the culture, I don't think, if I remember correctly, a woman could not initiate a divorce. That was something that the man could do. And the idea being that, for whatever reason, because she's been abandoned, perhaps she's a believer and her husband is an unbeliever, And so then you go to 1 Corinthians 7 to deal with that, to where um, if you are living with an unbeliever and they are happy to live with you, then you stay married. And if they leave you, you are no longer under bondage. You are free. And so the idea here in this culture was this is somebody who is, you have a woman who is destitute. 
She doesn't have anybody to provide for her. She doesn't have family that is going to be able to take her in in order to be able to care for her. So that's the idea. Whenever you see a widow, indeed, that's where you have, she's, she's really, truly alone. And if she is really, truly alone, and she is a believer, then the church steps in. Now, we've had that here now in our church, haven't we? We have had women who have been widowed where their husbands have died. We've had women who have been, we've had women who have been abandoned. If they don't have family and they are believers and they are members in this flock, then we are to take care of them. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the widow and the fatherless in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. James 1.27. God cares about widows. He's the husband to the widow. And if we have widows that are in need of being cared for, then we are to be his hands and feet in accomplishing that. But there is a qualification. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they, and this is referring to the children or the grandchildren, that they, must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. So, if a woman has got family, then the family is to take on that care for her. So, if need be, you, you add on a room. You do whatever you have to do in order to be able to take care of mom. You do it. And no, you don't have a choice. To be blunt. If mom is in need, you take care of her. And can I tell you something? If you want your kids to take care of you, if you're ever in that position, then you'd better be doing it for your own parents. Please don't try to go to them later in life and say, do as I say, not as I do. Bad move. And so if, if mom is in need, you take her in. And you take care of her. Why? Because that's what she, she sacrificed her life for you. Carolyn homeschooled our kids. 28 years she did that. I cannot tell you how many nights we would be sitting in our recliners in our living room and she would have a baby plugged in, nursing, and she'd be correcting papers. That happened night after night after night. To be honest, I don't think there was a break in there for years. 
we kept having kids. So there was always another one to be nursing. And so it went on. So since we had 10 kids in 16 years, you've got that going on for, let's see, Christopher was five, I think, when we started. So there's 11 plus a couple. That was probably for 13 years. That was on a nightly basis, every single night. Carolyn dedicated herself in service to God by serving me and by serving our kids, our family. So, if the day ever comes when I'm gone, those kids had better be taking care of their mom. They do owe her. And if you've been doing your duty as a godly parent, your kids owe you, to be blunt. So, model for them. And again, I know I'm preaching to the choir. I look around and I see some of you and, and know that that is exactly what you've done. And it's a beautiful thing. That's a great example. So lead by example in your own home. So if she's got kids or grandkids, if they want to be pious, if they want to live in a godly fashion, here's a good place to start. Now, she who is a widow indeed, so again, she doesn't have kids, she doesn't have grandkids, she doesn't have provision, and who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God, so she's a believer, and she is realizing that she is utterly dependent on God to, to, to provide for what she needs because she doesn't have it independently, and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. So here you have this woman over here. This is the one, this, if she doesn't have someone else to take care of her, this is the one the church does. In contrast to her, there is another widow. But this widow has means. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure. So the idea is, is she's very sensual in the idea that uh, if she sees it and she likes it, then she gets it. And that's what drives her. Okay, choir, you need to go up to room six. Yes. I'm almost done. <laughs> she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Dead how? Spiritually. She's spiritually dead. Prescribe these things as well. And that word prescribe again means, I'm sorry, command. So again, these are not divine suggestions. These are royal decrees. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. It's for their good that they understand these things. Now, in verse 4, you saw the positive view of uh, your, these kids and grandkids are learning piety by learning how to care for their parents. Verse 8 is going to take that from the negative side. 
if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, does this mean that he's losing his salvation in that he's denying the faith in that way? No. But he is denying and he is contradicting the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is love. It is, take, it is sacrificing yourself for the better of another. And who more to do that with than people in our own families? We're used to doing it for our kids. We need to make sure that we're doing it for our parents as well. And he's worse than an unbeliever because even unbelievers do that. You don't have to be a Christian to take care of your parents. You don't have to be. Many cultures, uh, there's a number of cultures here. Uh, I do fire investigations, and I got to tell you, there are certain homes that I go into, I'm going to see three, if not four generations inside that one house. And they divvy up rooms, and they do whatever they got to do in order to be able to have all those people there because they're caring for those who have previously cared for them. And so, as unbelievers, they do that. So, Christians, we need to make sure that we're stepping up to the plate here. And so that's one of those to where if the shoe fits, wear it. If you still have your folks and your folks are in need, you take care of them as they need to. Questions? None? You know what? It sure can be. All right? Now, I was blessed in that uh, we had uh, both my parents and both of my wife's parents were believers. We grew up in Christian homes. Uh, that was not true for my dad. Um, and so, and it wasn't true for, I, I think, my, my in-laws. So, I don't want to give the impression that you know, by doing this, this is going to be a panacea. This is a this is a view of heaven on earth. Because quite frankly, uh, there are relationships that are exceedingly difficult, and it would be a real sacrifice to do that. Um, and I think that there are ways to accomplish that that might be better than others. Um, with, with my wife's parents, we built a granny flat in our home. It was on the other side of the garage. So they had their own place. We could go back and forth during the winter without getting wet. And the only thing that we shared was, a, was the laundry room. So they had their own place. Um, and to be honest, if I was ever going to live 
with any of my kids, I would certainly want it to be that way myself. You know, so that there's, you know, some privacy and there's, there's a buffer. Um, but I think one of the things that speaks loudest, especially to a parent who has not been a good parent, who has not been godly in any way, shape, or form, I think one of the best ways that you witness, that you demonstrate the life of Christ to someone like that is you choose to love them despite the fact that they don't deserve it. And so, and again, that is much easier said than done. You need grace, and you need a lot of it when you're going to be in that position. And so, again, that's not an easy thing, and, and, and please don't take it as somehow it's, you know, pie in the sky, and this is just, you know, everything comes out peachy, and everything is, you know, coming up roses, and all of that. Uh, I think there are some people in this room who have experienced having parents and caring for their parents, and there's been some rough spots. There's been a lot of rough spots. So again, it's not, um, it doesn't mean that it's going to be pain-free. That's a good question. All right, let's pray. Father, some of these things are very simple. They are very straightforward. And yet, they are not easy. And just as, as what we were just referring to, the idea of, well, how do you do this to a parent who doesn't know you and, and was negligent, frankly, and perhaps even absent, who didn't, who was not faithful in their role, and yet, Lord, you don't require us to be faithful for somebody else. You require us to be faithful on our own, in our own place. And so, Lord, we, we, just, we ask for, for wisdom. We ask for discernment. And, Lord, most of all, we ask for your grace. Lord, that you would, you would take your love and that you would shed that, you would pour that out abroad through us that we would be able to be examples. You, you, you said to the disciples, by this men will know. They'll know that you're redeemed when you have love for one for another. That, that manifestation, that, that sacrifice for the, on the part of others is, is the proof of your life in us. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to be diligent in pursuing our own personal holiness, that we would be serious about being holy as you are holy, that we would not be satisfied with, with, with putting up with, you know, the quote-unquote, the, the little sins. Lord, help us to see sin as you do, that we would be repulsed by it Lord, help us to fight the attraction that we have for sin. It looks so good. Lord, help us to see it for what it really is, that we would turn from it and stay turned from it. 
And Lord, that we would know your truth. That we would understand you as you have revealed yourself to be. That we would be students of your word, diligent students. So that we can take your principles and we can put them into practice. You've given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. But it profits us nothing if we're not diligent in understanding your principles that we may apply them. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to not be lazy. Help us to not be distracted. Lord, thank you that you, you love us and you care for us. You give us everything that we need. Help us to look to no other. You alone are our great shepherd. In Christ's name, amen.